Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. But the first things are first. How about, first of all, we need to keep the Surrey RCMP right here in Surrey. All right, good morning to you. This is Mike Smith, and that was the voice of Brenda Locke there, the new incoming mayor of Surrey. She defeated Doug McCallum. That was her victory speech on election night and the number one promise there by the new Surrey mayor. Keep the RCMP in Surrey. Slam the brakes on this new Surrey police service. Go back to the future here. Go back to plan A. Keep the RCMP in Surrey. Now, how do you do that? How do you unscramble the omelet here after all the work that's already been done to set up this new Surrey police service? The city has already spent millions of dollars to set up this new police force. They've hired police officers. They've hired civilian staff. Just have a listen to this now. This is Norm Lipinski, the chief of the new Surrey Police Services, speaking earlier this week to our own Jazz Joe Hall. We're well down the road. Uh, We've been at this for two years. I've got 300 police officers uh, in total. I have 155 police officers working alongside our colleagues, the RCMP. I've got another 55 uh, ready to go for November. I've got 14 recruits at the JI, and I've got uh, another 14 recruits on the road with field training officers uh, patrolling Surrey. And so uh, we continue to move forward. Okay, that's Norm Lipinski, the new chief of the Surrey Police Service, saying, uh, yeah, they've been working on this thing for two years. He says it's too late. Turn back now. All right, let's discuss it now with my guest, Paul Danes. Paul is a member of the group Keep the RCMP in Surrey. And it's nice to speak to him again. Hey, Paul, thanks for coming on. Yeah, thank you for having me, Mike. Yeah, you bet. Thank you for doing it. What do you think about when you hear the chief there saying, like, hang on a sec, you can't go backwards now. We're already two years down the road here. What do you say to him? Absolute nonsense. And uh, right at the outset, I would like to make a a very, very valid point about Mr. Lipinski. Literally within hours of Brenda Locke making the speech that you just put out, Norm Lipinski and the Surrey Police Board were issuing demands for meetings with Mayor uh, Locke, uh, Mayor-elect Locke, um, insisting that uh, they wanted to present the case to her as to why she could not proceed on the um, uh, keep the RCMP in Surrey and terminate in the SPS. In all my years of following government, I've never heard a bureaucrat or head of a public agency so blatantly try to undermine and um, stop um, and, uh, uh, you know, a mandate that a, a, a politician has just been elected on. Absolutely disgraceful. He should... Well, um, <clears throat> yep. well he, just, he just says that that's just the reality of it, though, Paul. He says, look, if you take a look at all the work that's already been done... All the money says they've already spent more than 30 million bucks. They've uh, hired all these police officers, hired all these civilians. All the money that's been spent on 
I mean, you name it, like new uniforms, IT systems, that it, it's too late to put the brakes on the train. It's already gone right. too far down, down the track. Go ahead. Well, again, uh, just on the IT system, uh, despite yeah. repeated attempts over the last year, Mr. Lipinski has never once explained the exact amount of money that has been spent on the IT system and what it was spent on. Most of the money that's been mm. spent on the IT relates to supervisory uh, policy development and so on. So that's a, a non-starter as well. Um, the cost of keeping uh, the SPS or proceeding with its uh, transition um, is, is, is not really a valid argument in our opinion because it would be far, far more um, cost efficient to keep the RCMP. The RCMP currently mm. have approximately 600 uh, employees or members working and, uh, and civilian, uh, civilian um, employees as well. So the SPS transition is much closer to its beginning than it is to mm. end. They haven't, by their own admission, got a snowball's chance in hell of becoming the police of jurisdiction in Surrey until at least the year 2026. And for okay. uh, Lipinski uh, to commit to hiring yeah. more people and continuing with this transition when we've just had a, a, an election where, where the successful um, council and mayor have run on a keeping the RCP and stopping the transition. There will be very, very few uh, costs associated um, with um, reducing the number of SPS employees <coughs> currently hired. Um, they will not be um, given 18 months severance, as Mr. Lipinski quite uh-huh. falsely claims. They will be allowed and given every opportunity to work their notice out. My belief is okay. such is the short, shortage in demand for police officers in the lower mainland in particular. They will have no difficulty um, getting employment here in Vancouver. Speaking to Paul Danes, keep the RCMP in Surrey. The new mayor's promise to do precisely that and put the brakes on this new Surrey police force. Paul, let me play another clip here for you from Norm Lipinski, the new chief of the Surrey Police Service. He says it's too late to go back now. Uh, The train's already too far down the track. Now, have a listen to what he says here. He points out, he makes the case that A lot of the new police officers who have been hired in Surrey are former RCMP. A lot of them cashed in their pensions early. They've signed contracts. And he says it would just be a mess to try and undo it now. Here's what he has to say about that. Then I'll get your thoughts. Norm Lipinski. What about seniority? What does that really mean? If I have somebody with uh, 10 years service, is it going to be 10 years service over there? What does that mean for promotional opportunities? Mm-hmm. There's so, so many, I'll say, labor logistical issues to be sorted out that I think makes it impractical. Okay. He also went on to, to touch on the issue of severance that you mentioned, Paul, saying like, look, a lot of these, these officers have come over, they've signed contracts. If you tell them that you're now effectively fired, that they would be owed severance and it could cost millions. Your thoughts? Well, nobody's, nobody, but nobody has said that any SPS officer is going to be fired. I believe Brenda Locke made some statement about they're going to have to let some of the senior management go at some point. I don't know the exact detail on that or what her thinking is. On the subject of RCMP officers who've crossed over, 
this, uh, Mr. Lipinski's comments are more misinformation and, and designed deliberately to confuse and complicate what is a simple and straightforward situation. The RCMP officers who transferred over, for the most part, especially the, 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 the senior NCO middle management guys, were at the back end of their career, two, three years run. They went and joined the SPF with their eyes fully open. And when it comes to um, uh, RCMP, sorry, RCMP, it should be noted that repeatedly Mayor McCallum and Lipinski claimed that they were going to have 60% of their recruits coming from the sorry RCMP. They ended up with less than 5%. They also promised, they also promised, if I may, that April the 1st last year, they would have 805 um, officers uh, under their control and would be the police of jurisdiction this May. Never happened. Didn't even come close. Okay, well, they may be behind schedule, I think, as you you, uh, spell out there, but he says it's still too far down the road. Let's listen to another clip of the Surrey police chief here and get your thoughts. So here's Norm Lipinski. If you look how far we've gone down the road, if you look at the money we put into this, if you look at the cost severance, if mm-hmm. you look at the labor, the, the humanity part of this, um, I would say to anybody standing on the street, if you uh, ask them, I think it'd be fair to say it's too far down the road. Okay, you obviously disagree. Like, do you, but you've got yeah. a, the, mayor, the mayor and the council has to convince the province, though, that it's not too late to turn back, right? No, what the mayor and council have to convince the province or the Solicitor General of is that uh, transitioning back to the RCMP and halting the SVS transition, one, does not compromise public safety in Surrey, and, and yeah. two, complies with all aspects of the Police Act. So that's, that's number one. I'm sorry, what was, the next, what was the other question? Well, I mean, they've got to make the argument. I mean, you've got the... The police chief saying you can't you can't unscramble the omelet now it's too late. But you're oh, yeah, gonna, you can. Of course is, you can. The, the uh, last the last thing coming, Mayor, unscrambled the light rapid transit thing cost of fifty million <laughs> plus. You could, of course you can yeah. do that. And the other thing that Mr. Lipinski omits to mention is that if the SPS transition was to continue, the city of Surrey would lose a twenty million dollar federal government subsidy towards right. keeping the RCMP. That's a lot of money. That's $80 million over okay. four years. Paul, thank you for coming on today. We're following it closely. Yeah. Appreciate your time. Okay, you're welcome. Bye. All right, here we go now with workplace violence in hospitals and long-term care homes and elsewhere in the healthcare system. This has been a problem for years. Nurses and hospital workers and support staff, though, now reporting an increase in workplace violence. The government responding to it, announcing this week, 320 new security officers for hospitals and healthcare facilities. Have a listen to this here now. This is Amon Graywall, president of the BC Nurses Union, talking about what nurses experience on the job. Have a listen. Our members get punched, kicked, grabbed, spat on, as well as being verbally and sexually harassed. Our work is dangerous. Okay, the government responding now with hundreds of new security officers. Let's discuss it with my guest, Mina Brassard, Secretary Business Manager 
at the Hospital Employees Union. Mina, thank you for coming on today. Thanks, Mike. Good morning. Yeah, you bet. Good morning to you. It's kind of sad to think that we've come to this this place here where the government has to hire 320 security officers. That's a, that's a lot. How how bad is this has this gotten? Like has this gotten worse recently? I think, uh, Mike, the statistics shows that it hasn't uh, gotten worse. Um, but uh, anecdotally, uh, speaking with our members, we know that uh, it's, it's it's really bad. In fact, nearly two-thirds of all WCD time loss claims due to acts of violence are in healthcare, and that, uh, that's a really significant uh, statistic. Yeah, what kind of incidents are you seeing? Like we heard from the nurses' union describes describe some of the things that nurses are experiencing what what are your people telling you what are they seeing out there what are they what are they experiencing they're experiencing uh the same situations the nurses are you know we're part of the healthcare team we work side by side uh with the nurses and you know lots of people coming into our hospitals are really having some of the worst days of their lives and they may be dealing with trauma pain or loss or with mental health challenges or addictions and you know, healthcare workers are dealing every day with mental health issues, and it's not uncommon to deal with acts of violence. And at the end of the day, all healthcare workers deserve a safe workplace, and that involves making sure there's adequate staffing and mental health supports in our communities. And we really have to deal with the root problems, which is making sure that we have enough mental health resources in our communities so that this level of violence isn't happening at the hospitals. Yeah, let's talk a little bit about these protection officers that the government is hiring. What do you hope will be achieved by that? Like, what kind of training will these these protection officers receive? Yeah, so their training is quite significant. So all protection service personnel will receive training in workplace violence uh, prevention, in mental health, in advanced customer service. And they're also going to receive trauma-informed practice training to acquire the necessary knowledge, the skills, and the language uh, to be able to apply a trauma-informed lens to interactions with patients, with families, uh, with clients and colleagues. And it's important to note that this training will vary um, depending on what community or what uh, health authority that you're in. So the training in, say, Vancouver Coastal or Fraser Health may differ uh, slightly. um, And again, using the trauma-informed lens may differ uh, from the training that uh, these uh, protection service officers receive in Northern Health. Right. Speaking of Mina Brassard, Hospital Employees Union, the government hiring 320 security personnel for healthcare workplaces. Like when you talk about, you know, some of the trauma that people are seeing and, and how these protection officers are going to help. One thing I heard the, the minister stress this week was, the ability of these officers to de-escalate so that they'd be trained to kind of see problems coming, like before it gets into a, a very violent situation where somebody's injured, like how important is it to identify quickly before something gets bad and intervene quickly to sort of de-escalate it? Absolutely. That's, uh, that's critical. And these new uh, prevention uh, service officers you know, if they're working on a ward, they're going to have knowledge of the patients that they're working with. And, and that's a yeah. critical point. And say if they are in the emergency ward and they hear a code white uh, that there's an alert uh, for staff that uh, 
there's a violent or potentially violent patient who is unmanageable on, on a ward, that that prevention service officer could ultimately move to that ward and be part of that team uh, that uh, de-escalates uh, that, uh, that patient. So I think uh, these uh, positions are, are critical, but again, we do need to get more uh, workers, more mental health workers and care aides wow. uh, into the healthcare settings. Yeah, you touched a little bit on this earlier about <clears throat> challenges with mental illness, people like presenting and let's say in an emergency room, they've got mental illness problems, they've got drug addiction problems. Is, is that, can you expand a little bit on that? Like, is that sort of underlying some of this? Like, are we seeing more of that, the, these type of people in crisis? Yeah, absolutely we are. And we're also dealing with uh, workplace uh, burnout, uh, um, staffing, uh, low staffing levels. And it really is, uh, I believe, significant that these new protection service officers also are integrated into the healthcare team as in-house employees. And that means that there will be a more cohesive approach to addressing these potential violent situations in the workplace. And again, the statistics don't show this, but our members are telling us, and we heard it earlier with the comments from the nurses, uh, that they, we are seeing more violence in the hospital acute and long-term care settings. Yeah. That is really tragic to think that that is going on right now. And as you mentioned, like a lot of this affects workers who get, they're injured, maybe they're off on a worker's compensation. Maybe some of them even leave the workforce completely because they're like, oh, I've had enough of this. So the health minister touched on that earlier this week. So let me play a comment from him and get your thoughts. So this is health minister Adrian Dix on how this workplace violence is impacting the system. Have a listen. We know workplace violence significantly affects their physical and mental health, requiring healthcare employees to take time off work or worse, leave the healthcare field entirely. We've already got a shortage of healthcare workers, and is this making it worse? Absolutely. And uh, Mike, when we last polled our membership, uh, and we represent over 50,000 skilled healthcare workers across uh, British Columbia, uh, one in three was planning on leaving the healthcare system in the next two years. And we cannot afford to lose any more skilled and trained healthcare professionals. So these investments in worker health and safety today will help in our efforts to retain skilled staff and recruit the healthcare uh, workers we need in the future. Right. And often, you know, we sort of imagine, I think, when we talk about this type of in- workplace violence in healthcare, you imagine someone kind of acting out in an emergency room. But you also mentioned long term care. And, you know, when people are going through any kind of dementia, Alzheimer's, is that a situation where sometimes people, like patients, can act out? Oh, absolutely. You know, we hear, well, you know, the majority of our interactions our members have with patients in care homes and residents and the public are safe and routine, but that's not always the case. And and you just mentioned it, you know, in long-term care and care for residents, uh, when we're caring for residents with cognitive illness like dementia in these settings, it's not uncommon for our members to be struck, to be scratched, to be kicked and punched and, and otherwise injured. And what normally happens, uh, unless it's really severe, it's not reported because it happens so routinely. And, you know, we are making uh, more awareness for our members to make sure that they do uh, report these incidents so uh, we can have better health and safety protections for them. 
Okay. It, it's already a, a shortage of healthcare workers. We've already talked about that. Now they're talking about hiring 320 new security people, getting them trained up and on the job. How difficult could that be? Like, where are they going to find all this, these security personnel? Well, we are going to be working uh, with the government and with the organization called Switch BC that uh, they provide um, uh, help address workplace safety. So we have provincial uh, committees. Uh, again, the health unions and doctors of BC are committed to uh, this approach. And we're also, you know, making sure that we have collective agreement language that will attract uh, workers uh, to come uh, and work for health authorities. And as you know, we just finished a round of negotiations and health and safety was an important and key part of that. And we were able to negotiate language and to be able to provide violence prevention, refresher training, more input on care uh, planning for aggressive uh, patients or residents and stronger reporting procedures or harassment uh, from patients and and uh, from visitors. And I think all of these pieces will help attract uh, new workers into the healthcare setting. Mina, thank you for coming on today with your thoughts on it. I appreciate it. Thanks, Mike. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. All right. Let's talk about that bureaucracy in the healthcare system. Uh, some of these numbers very surprising this year. How many vice presidents in the healthcare system right now are making four hundred thousand dollars a year? Let's discuss it with Liberal MLA Todd Stone. Pleased to welcome him back, Todd. Thanks for coming on. Uh, happy to be with you, Mike. Okay, when you talked about these numbers in the legislature this week, I did to do like a double take. I was what? How many vice presidents we got making 400K a year? Break this down for me. Like, how, how many of these, these vice presidents are making this kind of bread? Yeah, well, when you look across all of, of the six health authorities that we have in British Columbia, uh, there are 64 vice presidents that are making, uh, on average, $400,000 per year. Some are, are, are higher than that, others a bit, bit lower than that, but on average, 400000 per year. Um, to to break it down by health authority, uh, the uh, Vancouver Coastal Health Authority has the most vice presidents, so 16 vice presidents uh, in addition to their CEO. Fraser Health has 10 VPs. Uh, The Provincial Health Services Authority has 14. Uh, Interior Health has 9. Northern Health has 11. Uh, I I mean, it's just, it's it's an outrageous uh, expenditure uh, from an administrative cost perspective. And I want to contrast this uh, because I think this really drives home the point uh, the province of Alberta, which has a population not that small, much smaller than British Columbia's, uh, for the entire province of Alberta, they have nine VPs uh, you know, in addition to their CEO. So, I mean, if that doesn't, you know, give British Columbians uh, a pretty good sense that the administrative costs in this province are, are out of control, uh, I don't know what, do, what, what, what will. And, and you mentioned it in your intro uh, the the total administrative costs cumulatively of all six health authorities in British Columbia has increased by 1.3 billion uh, on an annual basis uh, uh, compared to what the total cost was uh, in 2017. 
Okay. Well, you know, the numbers, when you, when you spell them out like that, I think they're surprising to a lot of people. But let's face it. This is a, a big, expensive system that we have. So obviously you're going to have a big administrative bill. You're going to have upper managers pulling down big salaries. But you think it's too big correct? Well, uh, yeah. I mean, uh, if I look at, um, uh, at Vancouver Coastal or Interior Health, for example, I mean, there are multiple vice presidents that have uh, virtually the exact same title. Uh, you know, Interior Health has got three uh, vice presidents uh, for clinical operations. Uh, uh, you know, do, do, you, do you need three uh, in, in one, one health authority? Um, uh, you know, we're not, we're not saying that there isn't a need for, uh, for middle and upper management uh, uh, for certain. But uh, when you when you compare uh, the uh, the total costs in British Columbia uh, with uh, with Alberta next door, and and by the way, the, the healthcare outcomes in many respects um, are better in Alberta at the moment. Uh, they don't have one in five Albertans without a, a family doctor. Um, you, you don't hear the, the same uh, uh, frequency of stories about people dying in hallways and in, in emergency rooms well, uh, in Alberta. Let me uh, so I, let me play a let you, me let me play a clip of the health. Let me play a clip of the health. Just in the interest of time, jump in. Sure. Let me play a clip yeah. of the health minister. You went after Adrian Dix in the legislature on this point this week. He pushed back at you, saying, "Look, we've expanded the healthcare system. So yeah, of course, administrative costs have gone up." Here's what he had to say to you, and then I'll get your thoughts, Adrian Dix. We've added care aides. We've added nurses. We've added health sciences professionals. We've added doctors, honorable speaker, and still, honorable speaker. In the context, and Honourable Speaker, they still talk about their fantasy of privatization, Honourable Speaker. Honourable Speaker, when that group on the other side of the House damaged our health care system for a generation through privatization schemes that made no sense. Okay. Okay. 30 seconds, Todd Stone. So he says, look, <laughs> we've expanded the system. It costs more. And you guys wanted to privatize the system. Yeah, 30 seconds. Go ahead. Well, it's a, that's an outrageous uh, attempt at deflection. I mean, the bottom line is uh, we do not need 64 vice presidents in British Columbia's uh, health authorities making $400,000 each. Um, this government has, has doubled the total administrative costs, uh, so that's $1.3 more in, in health care administrative costs um, since 2017. And what really matters, Mike? Our results and our outcomes. Uh, one in yeah. five without a doctor. Uh, nurses are burnt out. They're on their last legs. Uh, you know, the radiologists are warning of a, of a tsunami of late-stage cancer cases. On and on it goes. The healthcare system okay. has collapsed, and that's against the backdrop <clears throat> of this massive increase in administrative costs under the NDP. Thanks for, thank you for coming on. Thanks, Mike. All right, welcome back. Let's talk about some of the worst habits of BC drivers. What do you think they are? What drives you nuts the most about the other guy behind the wheel? Is it people who drive in the turn in the passing lane too slowly? That drives a lot of people wacky. How about people who are distracted drivers? And trying to text on your phone while your vehicle is moving. Yeah, that's another one's high on the list. How about this one now? Brand new survey. Zombie drivers. Okay, this survey was commissioned by American insurance company Root Insurance, and they monitoring driver habits. It found that 27% of drivers say they often zone out while driving they feel like they're driving on 
autopilot. They become zombie drivers. What is a zombie driver? It's someone who's driving while fatigued or daydreaming or thinking about something else other than what they should be thinking about driving safely on a road or highway. They are zombie drivers, 27% of drivers say that happens to them, according to this study. Let's discuss it now with my guest, Grant Gottgetrue. Grant is a former police officer. He is now a forensic consultant on traffic violations. ForensicTrafficPro.com is his website. Grant, thanks for coming on again. Grant, can you hear me okay? Oh, sorry, I zoned out. <laughs> okay, you're a, zon- you're a zombie driver. Okay. No. Hey, hey, Grant. So when you hear when you hear this one, a zombie driver. Maybe this is uh, apropos for the Halloween season here. Does that make sense to you? Like, as a traffic pro, like a former traffic cop, that sometimes people behind the wheel are are, are zoned out like that. They turn into zombies behind the wheel. Is that true? Oh, a thousand percent. Especially anyone who ever works a, a graveyard shift knows. When they drive home, they're totally zoned out. Uh, oh yeah, I saw it. I saw it quite often on the fourth, and I continue to see it to this day. And I'm sure everyone can relate seeing someone like that. Yeah. Okay. How would you describe it? Like someone who is just not what they're not paying attention to the road. Completely oblivious. Yes, they're completely oblivious mm-hmm. for a variety of reasons, not just fatigue, but they're just. They're, they're focusing too much on something that has nothing to do with driving, whether it's, uh, you know, uh, they're tired or they're distracted by something in their car, like their phone or the radio. Oh, this song I love. And they're going to dance to it without paying attention to what's going on around them. Their situational awareness is atrocious. Can that lead to an accident? It normally does. Absolutely. There's a lot of people that I spoke to after collision. They said, well, I don't know what happened. I, I just, I don't know what happened. I didn't see anything. Oblivious. How can people focused. avoid that? I mean. Oh. Uh, yeah, go, go, go ahead, Grant. Yeah, go ahead. Well, there certainly needs to be, first of all, at the very beginning, when you're, you're uh, getting your driver's license, there needs to be more focus on, on, on driver attentiveness. There, there needs to be heavily focused on that because um, it's still, you know, the number one killer for young people uh, is driving. And, and a lot of it has to do with uh, lack of uh, testing in that area by both uh, uh, the, the written test, the driving test, and driving uh, instructors need to really focus on that. So you get them right at the very beginning and you you give drivers, the young drivers, really good driving habits. But then, like anything else, the more comfortable you are doing something, the more easy the more easy it is to zone out. Okay, zombie drivers are one hazard on the road, according to this survey. There's been other surveys as well about poor driving habits. What are the worst ones? I'm taking a look at a poll this year, U.S. News and World Report on the worst driving habits. Let's take a look at some of these, Grant, for, for your thoughts. 64% road rage. 64% of drivers say, yeah, they've experienced rage behind the wheel. How common is that and how dangerous is that? 
Well, it's very common, and it's it's really become more prevalent because of the amount of uh, congestion that there is on the roads now and the uh, lack of courtesy between uh, drivers to other drivers. And you see it all the time. There's tailgaters. There's people that hog the left lane, which causes people behind them to get really mad and make aggressive uh, passing, uh, make aggressive passes to get around the left lane hog um, and, and a lot of it has to do with the congestion, especially in the lower mainland. It's just, it's, it's so bad with the congestion all the way from Vancouver, all the way out to Sumas area. And, and it's not surprising that, that, um, calls for road rage have increased exponentially because of it. Going down the list on this survey, 51% speeding. 51% of drivers admit to speeding behind the wheel. 37% will say they have driven when they're too tired to be driving. That can often lead to the, the zombie driver we discussed. 31% say they've nearly fallen asleep behind the wheel while driving. 30% admit to not, not signaling. What about that one, Grant? Not signaling. How often do you see that? Well, I think most vehicles uh, uh, have run out of blinker fluid. I'm sure you've seen that one before. Uh, fill up your <laughs> blinker fluid. Yeah, it's actually something I, I see worse in the States than up here in B.C. Um, down in the States, they certainly don't use their turn signals a lot. Um, but it, it's just one of those things where it's just lazy. People just, you know, just use your turn signal. It, it's, it's really easy to do. It's right there by your hand. Um, but then it's it's another example of of just the, the lack of courtesy with a lot of drivers, and it's getting worse. And I think we can all agree on that. Okay, talking bad driving habits with my guest Grant Gottkatru, and we got a ton of phone calls here. Mike and Burnaby. Hey, Mike, go ahead. Hi, thank you. Uh, yeah, uh, people do use their turn signals, but they use it as they're making their turn. You know, please use your turn signal to let other people know what your intention is. But the main thing is the lack of common sense, how these people have gotten their driver's license with lack of common sense does not make sense. Um, <laughs> I would like to go to the root of the issue and uh uh, give a fine to the people who have granted these people with driver's license who have lack of common sense. Okay, Grant, what do you think of that? Okay, let's talk about signaling too late. What do you think of that? Oh, that's, that is uh, not entirely unusual. Uh, um, the problem, sometimes the problem, and what the police have to check, and they know this, when, they, when you're pulling someone over for... Uh, not using their signal to make sure that the uh, signal is working both inside the vehicle and out. Because uh, sometimes you might turn your turn signal on and it's showing that it's flashing, but it's actually not flashing outside the vehicle. So there's, there, there's that. Um, my, uh, <laughs> my biggest pet peeve are, are the left lane hogs. And, and I think we can all agree yeah. on that. I live in, I mean, I, uh, you know, as soon as, as soon as I come down from the Okanagan and I get into Chilliwack right away, the left lane is plugged with people that are either doing the speed limit or right under the speed limit. And it's just, yeah. it's ridiculous. The other point the caller made yeah. regarding uh, driver training. Uh, yeah, there needs to be, I mean, 
the government really needs to step in here. I think driver training schools should be mandatory for everybody. I don't, I, I, I don't like the fact that, you know, uh, kids learn to, to drive from their parents so that they're learning all the bad habits that the parents have. Uh, driving okay. Is, okay. is very high risk. It should be driver training school mandatory. Let's go to Steve on the line in Burnaby. Hi, Steve. Go ahead. Yeah, good morning. I drove a service vehicle for many years, and I found myself nodding off at the wheel. And it turns out I was suffering from sleep apnea. So I finally got treatment for that, and now I'm getting a full night's sleep, and I'm raring to go. So I wonder if some of your zombies are suffering from that. Okay, that's a good point, Steve. Thank you for that. Grant, what do you think? It's more common than you think. Uh, you know, people are afraid to get themselves tested for that, but uh, he's spot on. Yeah. Should not be driving if you're fatigued anyways, regardless. Let's go to Doug on the line in Surrey. Hi, Doug. Go ahead. I, uh, have this ongoing thing. I don't drive anymore because I'd be dead in six months with some of the airheads running around Surrey. Um, people that do (laughs) not know how to merge, you will see them and they don't know how to look over their left shoulder to check for a blind spot and find a place in traffic and merge with it. When they run out of merge lane, oh, oh, and they have a panic attack and hit the binders, and all of a sudden you got a tank-car shunt because nobody has any place to go because I'm not up at the front. Okay, Grant, proper merging technique. Go ahead. Uh, the government's finally gotten smart. You've probably seen more signs around that shows that, uh, you know, it's, it should be like a zipper. You kind of all right. move in at the end there like a zipper. Uh, again, this is stuff that needs to be focused on with educating the, the, the motoring public through commercials, uh, by ICBC, and training at the very beginning. Because he's absolutely right. Some people will stop 400 meters behind them before the merge and try to merge in there. And it just creates this complete bottleneck. It's a complete disaster. Let's go to Danny in Langley. Hi, Danny. Go ahead. Hello. Hi. Oh, I'm on now. There we go. Um, yeah. I was just saying, when you're in the passing lane and there's, you're keeping safe distance between you and the vehicle in front of you, then you get the guys yeah. coming up in the slow lane while they're behind you, and then they try to skirt the slow lane and cut you off thinking there's that, that you're not keeping up or you're not moving, or they're just trying to pass one car at a time by cutting you off from zipping up you know, the slow lane, so to speak. Irritating. Yeah, it can start to no end. It can start to get start to get dangerous. Grant, your thoughts? Oh, I see it all the time. You try to keep a safe distance, and some that generally happens in the left lane. If you're in the right lane and you're keeping a safe distance, you know, let the bozos go by you faster in the left lane. It's when you're in the left lane, you're trying to keep a safe distance, and then yo-yos cut in front of you because they've got enough distance in their head. Yeah, they can make it easy, yeah, I... which is like, yeah. Yeah, move over. Like, don't sit there and hog up that passing lane. That'll solve everybody's problems. Parm in Vancouver. Hi, Parm. Good. Go ahead. Um, yeah, so, like, when you're merging, you know, occasionally there'll be uh, uh, an idiot who uh, doesn't want to let you in, and they'll actually speed up. And I never understood what is the psychology behind that. Like, what is wrong with this guy? Does he feel that inferior to other people? Like, he's got to show that, hey, I'm not letting you in front of me. There's no way, and I don't know. Like, there's something, and it really pisses me off. And okay, Grant. Yeah. Grant. Yeah, I couldn't. I couldn't agree with him more. I see it quite often, and again, it boils down to driver drivers being inconsiderate because of the, especially the congestion problem. 
in the lower mainland and the roads aren't designed for all those vehicles and everyone's just getting so mad it's like no i'm not letting you in front of me even though legally i have to because it's a merge wayne and langley hi wayne hi uh, i got a couple of things uh, on the merging people have to hit the merge at freeway speed in order to blend in and if you don't it screws everybody up second one is people when they leave their home they don't plow their road out so consequently they're in the left lane and all of a sudden they've got to cross three lanes of traffic to get make the exit it infuriates me thank you okay plan plan ahead grant oh yeah when i merge on at the highway from uh, 176 northbound uh, i'll follow someone who goes onto the highway at 50k it's like uh excuse me you're going onto the freeway can you maybe put yeah. a little bit more effort into getting on? So, yeah, he's absolutely right. It, it is infuriating. I think sometimes people get a little timid, I think, sometimes when they're when they're reaching that merge point. Jeff and Agassiz. Sure. Hi, Jeff. Sure, hey, then get uh, off the road. Two, two questions. Uh, yeah. One is people that don't drive with their taillights on when it's dark, raining. Uh, and the other one is the fact that these manufacturers are making cars now where people don't have to know how to drive. The car does everything for them. It's the worst thing ever invented. Go back to the 1970 Nova, where there's no electronics, where you got to learn how to back up, you got to learn how to shoulder check. Ah, it's frustrating. Thank you, thank you, Jeff. You have 30 seconds, Grant. Like, are the cars becoming too automatic now, too sophisticated? Oh yeah, and you'll see within. 10, 20 years, it, it'll be even worse with the amount of people just zoning out because they're going to let the car do all the driving for them. Okay, Grant, we could have done the whole show with you today because there are more calls coming in. We'll just have to have you back. Thanks for coming on today, though. Anytime. My pleasure.